It's good to be here this morning. Uh, it's great to see you all here. Uh, it's a privilege for me to be here and to walk through uh, some uh, scripture this morning and to share a little bit of what's uh, been on my heart lately. Uh, thanks, worship team, for leading us there. That was fantastic, incredible uh, music to bring us into this spirit of worship, into this uh, house of prayer and house of praise to our God. Well, I don't know why, but every year since I've been here, the senior high youth group has done a white elephant gift exchange. Now, it's a strange thing to do at our Christmas party every year, but uh, because it involves cheap gifts and petty theft. And, and every year, inevitably, somebody gets really attached to their $5 or less gift that they've randomly selected, and somebody else steals it from them. And the instant that that happens, there's tension. And this year, our students started to point that out. They picked up on the tension. They started to point it out. And they're like, oh, there's tension. And it became kind of a little bit awkward. And uh, yeah, it was just a weird feel in the room. But luckily, with white elephant gift exchanges, the tension is temporary. The, the drama is very minimal, and it doesn't last. But you and I know that as we go through this life, we are going to, if we haven't already, face tension and drama with our families. We are going to encounter those moments where it's more than just a little bit awkward, and afterwards there is some lingering dysfunction even. And we're very familiar with that. I'm willing to bet that you have faced tension like that, or you will at some point in your life. For our family, Thanksgiving and Christmas seem to be those times where uh, those little bits of tension come up. Uh, it's, it usually doesn't last for super long, but that's when, that's when we experience tension. It's that, that drama that's dynamic and live. Uh, we ex uh, it's just sometimes things don't turn out the way we expect it. They don't, they don't turn out the way that we want. And uh, we, we don't get the thing that we think we want. And we don't have to look too far to find that friction. For many of us, the struggle is real. Uh, maybe you sense the reality of a fractured family in this season. Maybe the divides have been felt at home. Maybe they've been felt as a part of our church family. Uh, maybe they've been at work, at school, at your local grocery store for crying out loud. There's been tension. You don't want to make eye contact with somebody. You're not sure if you should speak or not. Uh, you're just looking at eyeballs. So We've all faced that tension, and you have your own stories. You could, you could put your own story in right here. The stories of tension, secrets, fractures. And when you think about the kind of hurt that's been caused, you might say to yourself, well, shouldn't this be better? Shouldn't this be happier? Shouldn't this be a more forgiving space? One big happy family, right? And it's at this point where we often stop thinking and we start just reacting. Where we, are, we start reacting by pursuing and preserving and protecting 
ourselves and our self-interest. And sometimes when we see the struggle, it's just easier to tap out, bow out, or run out. Other times we might dig our heels in and push so hard against it that things blow up and we actually make it worse. But what if there was a better way? What if there was a better way to see our family in the midst of struggle? To help us, we're going to look at one famous family in the Old Testament. We'll see that God has a long history of dealing with family drama and family dysfunction and less than perfect human beings. And yet, mysteriously and somewhat miraculously, he continues to work in and through imperfect human beings. Even when it gets to soap opera level drama or even worse, a three-round, all-out UFC cage match. So we're going to be looking at Genesis 25. So if you want to turn there, that's where we're going to pick up the story. As you do that, as you do that, um, we are, uh, I, I want to give a little context for the book of Genesis. Genesis starts really, really big. Starts with creation of the cosmos big. God breathing in everything into existence. Everything that we see and experience and know, God breathed that into existence at the beginning of Genesis. Genesis, really big, wide scope. And then it gets narrower and narrower and narrower, narrower as we get down to a focus on one family. It's Abraham's family. And God is interacting very personally with Abraham. And he makes a promise to Abraham. He says, you know what? I'm going to make you a great nation. And immediately God begins working out that promise. But it's not without like a little bit of a delay. It, it takes quite a while for um, the promise to actually uh, take on concrete form in a baby being born, because that's what you need in order for a nation to be created out of your family. Isaac is born, the promise is fulfilled, and then uh, it continues. From Isaac, we have Jacob and Esau. And this, is where, and this is where we land in our story, in Genesis 25. And we're going to start in verse 19. Now, I have the uh, Bema podcast with Marty Solomon to thank for shaping some of the thinking around this. I would highly recommend checking that out. Uh, it's inc they do an incredibly deep dive, way deeper than we're going to be able to do this morning into the text, and it's been really helpful for me. But what we have to begin with is round one, the battle before birth. This battle between brothers for primacy and leadership, uh, this me-firstness, actually starts in the womb and causes Isaac's wife, Rebecca, to question if the pregnancy is even worth it. So let's pick up there. Genesis 25, verse 19 is where we're going to start. This is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Padam Aram, and sister Laban of Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, 
Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first came out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So Jacob, a little word study, means heel grabber. Um, it means uh, that uh, he, it refers to this moment where he is actually grabbing the heel of his brother on the way out. And Jacob was eager to get out into the world. And he, he is eager to be the first one, even from the beginning. And he's, he's grabbing his brother's heel to, in order to make it happen. Even from the womb, Jacob has passion. But, but, but passion for what? What did he want? Now, the oracle in this passage gives us clues as to what Jacob would eventually be after. What the Lord says in, that, in verse 23. And we see that it, it was customary for it was customary for the older brother to get the birthright and the blessing. So the birthright would be uh, privileges to lead the family after the, their dad's passing. And the blessings would, would be there to kind of reinforce the future that was hoped for in that son. And the culture would have had Esau, the older brother, as the one to rightly inherit that leadership responsibility. Uh, he was uh, a man's man, a hunter-gatherer, rugged and strong. He was definitely the outdoors type. Jacob, however, was more on the artsy side of things and very concerned about his own self-interest and self-preservation, maybe even to the point of narcissistic pathology. Now, he was raised in a family that was very central to God's plan, and there's potential for that to have been reinforced throughout his life. But the point is, these, these boys, these two boys, couldn't have been more different. Got the outdoors guy and the indoors type. So the stage is set for round two. The battle for birthright. So let's read Genesis 25. We're going to continue with verses 29 and 30 to 34. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I am about to die, Esau said. What good is a birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. And I think 
we're on round two, just to catch up. Uh, so a lot happens in here, but Esau, this is, the thing that, this is the thing that stands out for me. Esau spurned his birthright or despised his birthright is another way to translate that. And he set aside his responsibility to lead in order to fill his belly. Now, I don't know why, but the author does not uh, bring any condemnation towards Jacob in this scene. It's, it's, all towards, it's all towards Esau. And maybe the author is drawing attention to the way that Esau demands food. It's almost like he's saying, give me some of that stew. I want it, I want it in me as fast as I can. I'm not even going to chew. Maybe that's what the author is pointing out. Or maybe the author is highlighting the way that Esau is kind of begging, kind of groveling, like really exaggerating, it seems like, the scene. Or maybe the author is highlighting the choice itself, the choice that Esau is making to set aside family status, privilege, and responsibility. It's almost like the inner monologue is, hmm, should I uh, choose the responsibility, the leadership, or the red stew? I choose red stew. That's what's happening in his mind. And, and it goes even further. Hebrews 12, verse 16, describes his conduct, Esau's conduct, as godless. So it's not just that he's making a bad choice. He's making a choice independently of God, apart from him. And the reality is that Esau knew the transaction that was being made. He willingly gives up his birthright. That's really important. The deception, if you're familiar with the story, that's later. We're, we're get, we'll get to that. But right now, Esau knows what he's doing. And it makes me wonder how many times I've wanted peace and fulfillment for myself and thrown aside conviction and ignored conscience, ignored conviction for the sake of immediate personal comfort and convenience. See, when I'm on a personal mission to push and pull for what I want, to make sure my needs are met, it is a real strain for my family. It makes my kids want to shut down. It makes my lovely wife want to pull her hair out. If I've made my whole day around revolving around me and what I want, it creates tension. And I think right when I think back, when I start reviewing the tape, when I start being kind of overwhelmed with a bit of guilt over all the times that I have created tension instead of created peace, I'm reminded of God's grace. And in his discussion of God's sovereign choice in Romans 9, 10 through 13, Paul makes reference to this very account specifically to the oracle that's made, that foretelling from God. The older will serve the younger. And it's as if Paul is reminding us who's really in control and the criteria he uses to choose who he's going to work in and through. It's not by merit, but by grace alone. It's not based on our ability to avoid dysfunction and be perfect humans, but rather by God's sovereign choice even before the brothers 
were out of the womb, God had decided. The older will serve the younger. God chooses and wills Jacob to be over Esau. But there's still another round to look at. Fast forward to Isaac's deathbed. This is their dad. Jacob and Esau's dad is dying. These are going to be his last moments on earth. And we see Jacob get the blessing that was due to Esau, a blessing that, culturally speaking, should have been Esau's. The other half of the inheritance package. Okay, first half was birthright, second half, blessing. Now, this is, the, this is gonna complete the package for Jacob. This is what he's been working for. This is what he's been waiting for. This is what he's been struggling and striving for. This is what all the tension and drama has been about. And then we get round three, the battle for blessing. Now, we've gotta look at um, this account in um, Genesis 27. I'm not going to read all the details. There's so much going on in here. I would suggest going back and reviewing this story on your own. But basically, in a fairly involved and elaborate scheme, uh, and there's so many details, Jacob and his mother conspire to make the promises of God, that oracle from God, a reality. They, but they take matters into their own hands rather than entrusting them to God. The deception works just as planned, and Jacob comes away with a blessing that should have been Esau's. Now, although it's hard to look at a story like this and see any redemptive qualities, it, it, it all just looks like one big mess. We've got to realize that God is working. God is present. He is making his will happen. He's present and he's working. Yes, we have human beings behaving deceitfully, usurping each other for power, trying to get the better, uh, trying to one-up one another for their own personal gain. But I think we have God making a choice as well. The one who's over everything is making a choice in who will lead his people. And in case you didn't know, his people, Israel, that's who Jacob is going to be leading. God's people, God's chosen people. God makes a choice here to use the remarkably flawed and unlikely character of Jacob over the shoe-in brother Esau. God isn't condoning Jacob's methods, but he is willing to work with a guy that has a little go-get-him gumption. Esau, on the other hand, doesn't put up much protest around losing his birthright responsibility, but he does get pretty upset when he realizes that the blessing has been taken from him too. See, Esau wants the title belt without the fight. He wants the blessing without the birthright. And it, because he is so worked up, because Esau is so worked up, because he's so emotional about losing the blessing, it causes him to want to kill to kill his brother Jacob. So Jacob runs. 
Now, the story continues. Jacob continues in a pattern of taking initiative, but using highly selfish, timid, and deceitful means. And the story of your family and my family continues too. So, uh, in, Gen- in this passage, in what we've looked at, I just want to pull out three things. Uh, I think these will be helpful, uh, helpful things for us. What, we see, what I see in this passage is a warning, an invitation, and a hope. The warning is that unguided passion has consequences, even if it produces immediate results. And on the flip side, lack of passion has consequences. Like when, like, when, like Esau, we don't step into our role and responsibility, we miss out on the blessing of the journey. As a dad, I have opportunities and responsibilities of leading my family well, to create moments to teach, to have eyes to see those teachable moments. So when my son asked me for a screwdriver, but I'm in the middle of doing something really important, really godly even, and I don't pause and I don't stop to think about him and what he might need, I miss an opportunity because I am focused on satisfying my own agenda. And it leads not to peace, but to tension. Along with the warning, there's an invitation, though. I think there's an invitation here to let God lead, to let God point our passions, to let him be in the center so that people can be central in our lives. The other day, I was uh, doing the noble act of vacuuming our basement such a selfless chore that I was doing for our family, to bless our family. But then one of my kids came down and asked me for something. Now, I missed an opportunity to help one of my kids with a need because I was so passionately focused on vacuuming, on doing my selfless service for the family. I could justify shirking the responsibility to selflessly lead because I was selflessly cleaning. And this is just one example. In those moments, I call it focus, but it's really just a missed opportunity to point, to to allow God to point my passions toward the people I have the most power and influence to empower and encourage. And there's an invitation that's connected closely to that first one, to let, along with letting God lead, to receive a blessing from God. Because God promises Abraham and Isaac and Jacob some things, but he also promises us through his spirit, his presence, strength, provision, fruitfulness, glorification, and reward. So when I was younger, I got really excited for Christmas. Um, I got really excited for Christmas, and when I should have been shopping for other people, I ended up buying stuff for myself. I don't know if any of you have been in that boat, but I love gifts, so I just couldn't help it. 
But I didn't realize is that what I was communicating to my parents was a complete and utter lack of faith. A lack of faith that they would know me well enough to get me the gift that I wanted for Christmas. And what I did was I stole the opportunity away from from them to give that gift. I stole the opportunity away even from myself to receive something from my parents and to understand their love and care for me. And the sad thing is I kind of passed that on to my kids. And we had a moment very similar to that this year, which we were able to anticipate and get ahead of. Um, but it, it is incredible how, those, how that principle works. And then lastly, uh, there is beyond warning and invitation, there's a hope. There's uh, a hope that we can find only in God. The future we truly want is only in him. So when our family dysfunction is high and it seems like everyone is on their own personal missions, on their own uh, personal kingdom building missions, stuff gets tense. We have something that we can hope in. We can hope in a God who sent his son to be the bridge between heaven and earth. The way from our need to his divine supply. And it's a hope that Jesus will find the radical, in Jesus we will find the radical humility and sensitivity and understanding and generosity we so deeply desire. So here's my question for us. What are you doing to contribute to the health or hurt of your family? As you're thinking about that, as you're thinking about the ways that you contribute to the health and hurt of your family, let me suggest three steps that might help. This has been helpful for me. There's nothing incredibly profound about these three steps, but it's helpful to remember that we always have time to stop and think. When we're right on the borderline of reacting, instead of thinking, we always have time to think. So think about this. The next time you're in the thick of it, Think of it with your family. Identify what you want. Look at what you want. Think about it. Is it soup that you want? Is it red stuff? Or is it better? Then acknowledge your limits. Look at yourself. What can you control and what's out of, outside of your control? And are you trying to control or manipulate your brother, your sister, your aunt, your grandma, your grandpa, your classmates, your friends, your teacher, your boss, whoever, or are you letting God control what only he can control? While you take a second to turn the mirror on yourself and realize that you are not God. And then thirdly, entrust your next move to God. You can keep trying to control outcomes independently of God, or you can let God point your passions toward his passions in his way and his time. God's grace has an incredible ability to show up at the perfect time in the perfect moments to save you from creating more tension, to save you from making the situation worse. from reminding you that there's always time to stop and think. 
Now, if the timeless perfection of God and Jesus is a bit overwhelming as your standard, you're in good company. Keep in mind, your family matters, and it can make a difference in the story God is authoring, even if there's been tension, dysfunction, fracture, or all of the above. Believing God can use our families, even in the thick of sibling rivalry, tension, frustration, friction, failures, fraud, can be one of our greatest displays of faith. So when you're tempted to pull away from people, or when you're tempted to push back so aggressively and abrasively that you end up just alienating everyone around you, or when you're tempted to just give up, resign yourself to forfeit, remember that God has not pulled away from us. He hasn't pushed back and brought the hammer down on us, but rather he stepped in, set aside his agenda, set aside his entire life, gave his life for us. He hasn't given up on us, and through himself, he's made a way for us to get what we truly want. Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, and he carries all the rights and privileges and power as the great birthright bearer. He leads, he saves, he empowers, he controls outcomes regardless of our waywardness. And we're invited to share in that birthright and blessing with him. And in that, we can hope. Even in the dysfunction, tension, and struggle, hope emerges in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Savior, comes out of the very family line of Jacob and Esau. A testimony to God's working, even in the mess. I think if you had asked Jacob and Esau at the time if they thought their family would play a critical role in the unfolding of God's grand story of redemption, they would have looked at you funny. Huh? Like, they all seem to be on their own personal missions. Yet God had made promises. God was working and is working. The savior of the world, the great birthright bearer, the firstborn of many would come from their family line. Their family mattered, and so does yours. So will we heed the warning? Will we accept the invite? Will we find renewed hope in the firstborn among many brothers and sisters? I hope so, because even when the struggle is real, your family matters, and the story is still being written. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for stepping into our world, into our mess, into our tension, into our drama, into our family dysfunction even. Lord, so that we could have hope, that we could accept that invitation to share in that birthright and that blessing. Lord, that you have bridged the gap between heaven and earth. God, that you have usurped even the, the usurper Jacob so that we could have a way 
a true and solid way to know you and to know God. God, thank you for stepping in even when things are super tense, even when the struggle is real, God. Thank you for being present with your grace and your Holy Spirit to help us, to help us take a moment and pause and to set our emotions aside for just a second and focus on what we know to be true of you. Father, we know that you are the one who saves. We know that you are the one who redeems. We know that you are the one who loves and cares for us regardless of what we do or say or think or feel. And God, I pray that you would be with us, God, that we would have an awareness of your presence with us in this new year that's just around the corner. That no matter what has happened in the past, that we could look forward to you and a hope in you for the future. God, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.